That beautiful psalm, like so many other psalms, speaks of the hope of the righteous who, though suffering now, will inherit the earth. And that's uh, much the same as what Paul speaks of in 2 Timothy chapter 1, which I invite you to turn to now for our scripture readings on page 1181 in your pew Bibles. Um, last week, we looked at the first five verses of 2 Timothy 1 and uh, Paul's opening thanksgiving for Timothy's faith. Now, uh, we consider uh, flowing out of that thanksgiving his call for Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God and suffer for the gospel. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 1, we'll read verses 6 through 18, which again is on page 1181 in your pew Bibles. This is the word of God. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, For I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service He rendered at Ephesus. Beloved, when John Calvin preached 2 Timothy, he said at the very beginning of his series, this book has done me as much good as any other book of Scripture. He said every day there is something of value in it. If we want the kind of testimony that will pierce our hearts, we can do no better then tarry here. We would have to be extremely sleepy and utterly mindless for God not to work in us once we hear the truths that will in this book come to light. Um, Calvin believed 2 Timothy, as much as any other book, reveals the power and majesty of God to thrill our hearts. Why would Calvin say that? 
What was it about Calvin that made the message of 2 Timothy so comforting to him? It's because Calvin knew something about suffering. Calvin knew something about suffering for the gospel. You you remember, he was exiled from Geneva. He suffered persecution. He was slandered and deposed by his own people. He lost his wife and his son. Calvin knew something about suffering. And even in particular, pastoral suffering. And so found in a book like this, and in a passage like this, balm for the soul. Because it tells us why we don't need to have a spirit of fear as we share in the sufferings of Christ, because God will keep us until that day when the promise of life that Paul first mentioned in 2 Timothy 1 verse 1 brings life and immortality fully to light. And Paul, throughout this passage, calls Timothy and us to share in the sufferings of Christ. And yet even as he calls us to do that, he also gives us the motivation to do so, and then he even gives us an example of what doing so will and will not look like. Let's look at me first at Paul's call for Timothy and us to share in the suffering of Christ, or we might call this the call to suffering witness. We see this in verses 6 to 8, where Paul, having just reminded Timothy of that sincere faith that dwelt first in his grandmother and his mother and now dwells in him, he, he reminds him to fan into flame the gift of God that is in him through the laying on of hands. This seems to be a reference to Timothy's ordination. Uh, Paul mentioned this back, I think, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 14. Here, he's, he's reminding him again of how he and the elders had laid hands on Timothy and set him apart as if to say, Timothy, remember how in that act, God was setting you apart for gospel ministry. Remember how he invested you with power and authority to minister the gospel. And as you remember that, don't be afraid. Don't be faint-hearted. That's that's how we might translate that word for fear. In verse 7, God has given us a spirit not of faint-heartedness, of weakness, but of power, and of love, and of self-control. Timothy has been invested with ministerial authority, and so doesn't need to be timid or fearful when opposition or suffering come, but has been given a spirit of power. The writer says, rather than to shrink back from the bold proclamation of the word, Timothy is to proclaim it with all energy and forthrightness because the Holy Spirit is not a spirit of timidity, but gives the power to do the work to which Timothy has been called. God is the one who graciously provides his ministers with the power needed to labor in his word. And so Paul reminds Timothy of his ordination where he was set apart as God's ambassador by the laying on of hands and says, God has invested you with power to minister his gospel, so remember that and go in his strength. Not in a spirit of faint-heartedness, fearing man or fearing the suffering that may come, whether from within or without, but with boldness. And yet a boldness that is also tempered by love and by self-control, not being ashamed 
of the gospel or of the testimony about our Lord, as Paul calls it, but sharing in suffering. Paul calls him not to fear the opposition that will come, not to be ashamed of bearing witness to Christ or of identifying with Paul, Christ's prisoner, but to share in the suffering of both for the sake of the gospel by the power of God. This is the call that that he's placing on Timothy in boldness and not in fear to bear witness to Christ and share in his suffering by identifying with Paul and his gospel by the power of God. That's the call that's being placed on Timothy and on every gospel minister. It is, in a sense, the call that's placed on all God's people to share in the suffering of Christ and whatever shame and whatever scorn may come from bearing witness to the gospel. Realize what a a theme this is in the New Testament, this theme of sharing in the suffering of Christ. Such a prominent theme that that in uh, the the very very last hours of, of his ministry to his disciples, Jesus would so emphasize it in John 15, saying, no servant is above his master. If they have persecuted me, they will persecute you also. He spoke of this throughout the, the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, especially in, in the Beatitudes, the very introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, of the certainty of suffering, of mourning, being hungry, being slandered, being slapped. He told Paul on the road to Damascus, I will show you, Paul, the things that you must suffer for my name. And Paul even speaks in Colossians chapter 1 of filling up what was lacking In Christ's afflictions. Not only would Paul have the privilege of proclaiming Christ's sufferings, but also of enacting Christ's sufferings. Eric Watkins says the suffering of Christ would be put on display in Paul's life. The gospel proclaimed by his lips would be evidenced by his life. Here Paul calls Timothy and every gospel minister and every Christian who is united to Christ to likewise share in that suffering. Doing so not in the spirit of fear, but as the blessed privilege of those who share in the fellowship of the cross. Even as the gospel that Timothy and and Paul proclaim is the gospel of our suffering Savior, he is pleased to proclaim it through not just the words of his messengers, but even through their suffering. Again, Watkins says, wedding our words and deeds together to reflect the glory of our crucified King. God is pleased to advance his gospel through suffering witness. Just read the book of Acts. And if Timothy, or if we should wonder um, whether it's truly worth it, Paul then in the next several verses reminds us why uh, God's people must be willing. Give me at verses 9 through 14, we move from the call to suffering witness to the motivation for suffering witness, which is the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Paul says, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. It says, not because of our works, but because of his purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ before the ages began and and which has now been manifest through the appearing of our our Lord Jesus, our Savior, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
as Paul so often does, he's, he's in the middle of, of a statement and, and the very mention of the gospel leads him to this several verse tangent about the glories of the gospel. And what is one of the most theologically robust statements of the gospel of salvation we have in the New Testament. John Stott breaks it down in terms of the character of the gospel, the source of the gospel, and the ground of the gospel, what it is, uh, where it comes from, and on what it rests. Notice first the character of the gospel. Paul says that it is this, God saving us to a holy calling. And it's first that God is the, the agent. God is the one acting. And what it says that he does is, is he saves us. Meaning he saves us from the wrath of God that is due because of our sin. We heard of that in Exodus chapter 20. The thunder, the darkness, the holiness and judgment that God's people deserve because of their sin and his holiness. God saves us from that by calling us to a holy calling, which is talking here about the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. Paul is not here talking about a a specific call to the gospel ministry, but he's talking about the call of the gospel and about the Spirit uh, calling or or awakening our hearts to respond to that gospel call in faith. He's, He's talking about both the external call of the gospel and the internal calling, the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit that awakens our hearts to respond in faith. And Paul is making the point that that too is God's work. Remember, we, we heard of that a little bit last week. That's, that's why uh, Paul thanked God for Timothy's faith in 1 verse 3. He doesn't thank Timothy for his faith, but he thanks God for Timothy's faith because it was born of the Spirit's call on Timothy's life, who called Timothy not just to bear faith, but verse 9 to holiness. He says he called us, he, he, he saved us by calling us to a holy calling. It makes you think of the, the words of Ephesians chapter 1 where Paul says that he called us to be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us to be holy and blameless before him. That was God's aim in, in planning and calling and drawing us to himself that we would be holy. character of this salvation that motivates Paul to suffer for the gospel consists in this. It is the salvation by God from the wrath of God for the guilt of sin, but but is also salvation from the power of sin so that we might be holy. That's the character of this salvation that Paul proclaims, that he charges Timothy and us to proclaim, And, and the source of this salvation then Paul says, it's not because of our works. And of course it couldn't be, because it wouldn't make any sense for for God to to see our holiness and then save us to a holy calling. You you recognize it, it's saying that the gospel is this, it's God from before eternity past calling us to a holy calling. And so it wouldn't make any sense at all to say that him calling us was somehow motivated by, by something good in us, by our own holiness. 
No, that the source of our salvation is God's own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. Because of his own good pleasure, he purposed from eternity past, literally from before eternal times, to show us grace in Christ. Paul emphasizes that the source of our salvation is God's good pleasure from eternity past, which he purposed in Christ that we might be holy. He saved us not because of our works that we had done, but because of his own good pleasure in Christ, which again, just as we heard last week, leaves no room for boasting, but only thankful praise. The fact that God saved us from, or he he purposed to to call and save us from, from before eternal times, not because of our own works, leaves absolutely no room for us to look down our noses at others or, or to think that we're here this morning because we've done anything. But it's all of grace. And not only does does this salvation of which Paul speaks, that the source of it being from before eternal times in God's own good pleasure, uh, leave no room for boasting, but only for thankful praise, but it also should lead to assurance that if the, the source of our salvation is in eternity past, then nothing that happens to us in this life can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Paul is celebrating the fact that God has saved us from the wrath of God because of our sin, not because of works that we had done, but because of his own purpose and grace, a purpose and grace that go all the way back to before eternal times. It is an accomplished or or historically grounded in the work of Christ in history. That's what Paul finally gets to in verse 10. This saving grace because of God's eternal electing purpose is manifest through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. God's eternal plan of salvation comes to fulfillment through the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ who abolishes death and brings life and immortality to light through the gospel. Remember how in the very first verse of this book, Paul referred to the gospel in 1 verse 1 as as the promise of life. And now the climax of this gospel that he is speaking of in verses 9 and 10, that the climax of this gospel is Christ defeating death and giving us life. Eternal life. Where death is nullified so that it becomes for us an entrance into glory. As Paul says elsewhere, it loses its sting and becomes for us not a separation from God, but rather a deepening of fellowship with God because Christ was forsaken for us. He died so that we could live. He took our curse so that we could have his his blessing that is rightfully his, of eternal life and the presence of God in paradise where immortality is brought to light. This is the gospel that motivates Paul to suffer. That's what he says in in verse 12, where after um, outlining this gospel of which he has made a preacher, apostle, and teacher, he says, this is why I suffer as I do. Because of the sheer glory of this gospel. 
which goes all the way back to before time began so that there's nothing I contribute to it except that the sin from which I'm saved. And, and so naturally, if Paul was saved only because of what God had pleased to choose before the world began, it's only fitting that Paul would be willing to dedicate himself to suffer in God's service because the glorious grace of God in the gospel is worth it. Because the glorious grace of God in the gospel has defeated death so that even if the worst possible thing that could happen to Paul as a result of his service should happen, namely death, it would be for him the best thing that could happen, an entrance into life and immortality. You see the connection between the gospel as the promise of life and Paul's willingness to suffer and die for it. Remember, he's, he's writing this from prison where he awaits his execution. He says, I'm willing to suffer for the gospel because it's the promise of life. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has defeated death. So that for those who trust in him, death is not the, the sad end to an otherwise happy existence, but death is rather the beginning of true life, eternal life. That's the gospel. Eternal life in fellowship with God because Christ has died in your place. So that now for you, death is an entrance into glory. If you trust in Christ by faith and repentance, that promise of life that Paul first mentioned, the very first verse of this gospel, that promise of life is yours. By faith and repentance. By confessing your sins and looking to our Lord Jesus Christ in faith, that because of his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection, his life becomes our life. And he has died in our place. We trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that promise of life is yours. And if it is, The next thing that we see in this passage then is is that God's grace should motivate you to be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel because A, Christ is worth it and because B, the worst possible thing that could happen to you is actually the best possible thing that could happen to you. God's grace motivates our suffering witness because it shows us how much he loves us and how much he's worth it because his grace in the gospel abolishes death and therefore gives us freedom to serve him not in a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control, trusting that he will keep us. That's what Paul says towards the end of verse 12. He, he says, this is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which is committed to him until that day. If you're following along, it's a somewhat um, tricky verse that the ESV says that God is able to keep what's been entrusted to, to Paul. But if you notice the footnote there at the end of verse 12, it says, as other translations render it, or what Paul has entrusted to him. I think that's actually the better way of rendering it. Paul is saying, um, even as God calls me to suffer for the gospel, I have entrusted my life to him, and he is able to keep what's been entrusted to him until that day. 
That day of which he speaks is, is the return of Christ when the dead will be raised and death will be fully abolished forever. Paul's comfort in the midst of his suffering and the shadow of death that is hanging over him is the return of our Lord Jesus Christ when all of our suffering will then give way to glory. John Calvin says, without keeping this end in view, we will not proceed in our calling, but will become faint. So lest the faithful servant of Christ be broken down, there is for him one and only one remedy to turn our eyes to the coming of Christ. Calvin said that especially with, with regard to pastoral suffering. But the same is true for each of us. If we would bear our cross and follow Christ, we must turn our eyes to that day. As if the Psalms so often help us to do. You think of of Psalm 37 or or Psalm 73. They fix our eyes on glory in the midst of our, our suffering. In the midst of the suffering of the faithful, they they lift our eyes to the coming of our Savior. That's what the Psalms so often do, and that's what Paul here encourages us to do likewise, to let the gospel of Jesus Christ, which goes all the way back to before time began and goes all the way to the very end of time, to let that motivate us to suffering witness to let it motivate us to follow the pattern of sound words no matter what opposition may come and guard the good deposit. The gospel that has been entrusted to Timothy is to be kept and guarded as it advances through suffering witness. And you see the temptation will be for the church to modify the gospel in order to avoid suffering. To, to take whatever the unpopular doctrine of the day is and, and compromise on it in order to, to avoid suffering. And, and so in, in a month, like so-called uh, Pride Month, maybe we, we modify the Bible's teaching about gender or marriage to, to stay in the good favor of the world around us. Paul says, no, guard the good deposit and don't change a thing. By the way, this is one of the reasons why we have confessions. Because they allow us to follow the pattern or the fixed form and guard the good teaching entrusted to the church, even making statements about what is out of bounds. And Carl Truman, in his book, The Creedal Imperative, talks about how passages like this and, and other passages like it in the pastoral epistles demand creedal and confessional formulations so that we can keep out false teaching. And so it's good and right that, that different denominations, even in recent days, would, would make statements about what kind of teaching and what kind of practice with, with regard to, say, um, human sexuality is, is out of bounds in the church. We must follow the pattern of sound words, even if unpopular, and be prepared to suffer for the gospel. The gospel that includes what we do with our bodies. It includes turning away from sin. Verse 9, it is a call to holiness. That's part of the gospel. And so Paul says, in effect, to Timothy and to us, don't modify the gospel to avoid suffering but guard it. Be willing to share in the scorn that Christ himself has borne and that I now am bearing in chains. 
People may mock you and call you old-fashioned. Maybe they'll accuse you of hate speech. Maybe you'll get fired from your job, but don't modify the gospel. And after saying that, he adds a little footnote, and he tells Timothy, he tells us as we do this, to do it also in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Or we could look back up to verse 7, where he tells him to, to continue steadfastly in proclaiming this gospel in a spirit not only of power, but also of love and of self-control. In other words, as I heard Alistair Begg say recently, he's calling Timothy and us to contend for the faith, yet not to be contentious, disagreeable, but to do so graciously, lovingly, winsomely. Some people in our day maybe need to hear that. Suffering for the gospel because of being faithful, not because of being belligerent. Paul calls us to share in the suffering of Christ, yet to do so with the same gentleness and meekness of Christ himself, the same thing that we sang of from Psalm 37. Kent Hughes says the attitude with which Timothy maintains his orthodoxy is is almost as important as the orthodoxy itself. That, That statement is maybe a little bit overstated, But what he's saying is we don't have to choose between one or the other. They're both necessary. They must be wed together. The late OPC uh, pastor, theologian George Knight says, Paul is, is saying here that the attitudes and actions of faith and love found in Christ are essential to one who would preserve the apostolic message. We do not have to, and in fact, we must not choose between orthodoxy and graciousness, even in a month like this, but God calls us to both. He calls us graciously to suffer for the gospel. He motivates us to suffer for the gospel. And then finally, he gives us an example beyond just that of of his own, of what suffering for the gospel does and doesn't look like. It's in verses 15 to 18. We have an example of suffering witness, namely in Onesiphorus. But before Paul gets to his positive example in verses 16 to 18, he first notes a pair of negative examples in verse 15. He says there, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Uh, Many commentators think that that what Paul is describing here is a great defection that took place at his arrest, that when the apostle was imprisoned, many uh, took a step back and and distanced themselves from him. In the words of verse 8, they were ashamed of God's prisoner, and they didn't want to become one to him. And so they separated themselves from God's ambassador, and and in so doing, separated themselves from the gospel. Paul mentions them by name. And yet not only them, but but he he says all who are in Asia, many. Reminding us not to be discouraged when many reject the gospel. For if it is a gospel that advances through suffering, then this kind of conflict and and this kind of, of opposition and this kind of minority status for the church are to be expected. Calvin says, Paul wants to encourage the church not to be surprised 
when the gospel is frustrated. Not to be shocked when God's people suffer or when people abandon the faith, even prominent members of the church like Phygelus and Hermogenes. To the untrained eye, Paul's situation, uh, the church's situation in Asia looks hopeless. It looks to be on the eve of extinction. But even as God's servant suffers like Elijah when he thought he was alone, God reminds him and reminds us that he has his people. People like Onesiphorus, who was not ashamed of Paul's chains, but came and refreshed him often after having looked everywhere for Paul's cold, dark, lonely prison cell so he might come and visit him. So he might come and do what Matthew 25 says, visiting Christ in prison by visiting his servant. What Hebrews 13 says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Onesiphorus does what Matthew 25 and Hebrews 13 call the church to do. He remembers God's persecuted servants and identifies with them. As we must also, remembering them in prayer, identifying with them in the the psalms of lament and the cries for justice that we sing on their behalf as we pray that God would show them mercy on that day. And again, Paul points us to the believer's ultimate hope, as he he mentions that in verse 18, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. Again, he points us to the believer's ultimate hope, the coming of Christ, when all of our suffering will give way to glory, and our Savior will show us mercy. This passage, it is clear that when people are, are unjustly harassed for defending God's truth, when they're slandered or afflicted in any way, we are to stand with them and share their shame. And Calvin says, when we do this, God affirms that he sees us from heaven, and though men may poke out their tongues at us, and though we may provoke the fury of the wicked against us, it is enough that God assures us from heaven that this is the service he requires of us. And if we are not rewarded now, a sure reward awaits us at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Again, for the, the third or fourth time in this passage, our, our gaze in verse 18 is pointed to the coming of our Lord Jesus, who has suffered once for all, but is now exalted in glory as we shall be too, having shared in his suffering. Love the reason why Timothy can share in Christ's suffering and Paul's also is because he knows that God has saved him to a holy calling that will be kept until that day when life and immortality are brought fully to light at the coming of Christ. And so he can suffer knowing that death has been abolished. That the one who has died in his place has abolished death and will keep him and, and will keep us also. And so we can gladly share in the suffering of Christ knowing that this is the very means by which the gospel of grace advances. As the Apostle John will say in Revelation chapter 12, the dragon is conquered. The the serpent from Genesis chapter 3 is conquered through the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony who loved not their lives, even unto death. May God give us grace to love not our lives, even in the face of death, but be willing to suffer for the gospel, to be willing to, to stand firm on issues like 
a biblical sexuality that have fallen out of favor or whatever the next thing is that falls out of favor. And to be willing to identify with our, our persecuted brothers and sisters throughout the world, praying for them and marching into God's throne room, praying to avenge their blood and would comfort them with the promise of Christ's coming. And perhaps God would even be pleased to raise up some of us in such a way that, that we would give ourselves away for the gospel in the, the kind of way that, that Paul has becoming a preacher and teacher of it, suffering as he does so that those who have not heard might hear and even, even see this gospel enacted through our suffering service as we love not our lives even unto death, but commit ourselves to him who is able to keep us until that day. May he give us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. And may we not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, motivated by that same gospel, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Paul and how because he was not ashamed of the gospel, it was brought to the ends of the known world at that time and eventually to us. We thank you for how you advance the gospel through suffering. As we don't have to be surprised when the world around us hates us or even as in verse 15 when many abandon the faith. But you have seen fit to advance the gospel of our suffering Savior through the suffering of his servants as in Revelation, through the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, who loved not their lives even unto death. Father, we pray that you would uh, raise up even from among us those who would proclaim this gospel, who would suffer as Paul does as a preacher and teacher of it. We pray that you would raise up from among us uh, young men and young women who would seek to serve you unashamedly and use their gifts for the advance of the gospel, though it may mean they're being poured out. We pray for each of us in the day-to-day lives that we live, that you would help us to guard the good deposit entrusted to the church unashamedly, though it may mean being mocked and marginalized. And Father, we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters who, though we may not be able to visit them in prison, we can remember them in prayer and cry out to you on their behalf that you would deliver them from their affliction through either the conversion or the judgment of their tormentors and that you would fix their eyes on the coming of Christ, assuring them that you were able to keep them until that day. We pray in Jesus' name.